I'm going to pray, and then uh, I'm going to just pour out God's Word like uh, it's coming from a fire hose. So uh, this is an introduction sermon, which means you get a lot of information. And uh, since Malachi's at the end of the Old Testament, everything in terms of background is from Genesis to Malachi. So uh, hold on to your hats. It's going to be a lot. And some of you, for the first time, are going to hear the story of God that you have never heard. Some of you go, I remember hearing that in, in church or in Sunday school at some point, and others... Um, I should say all of us should be able to tell this story. So I'm going to pray, ask that God will move me out of the way, and that he will open our hearts to uh, hear what he has to say this morning. So pray with me. Father God, we just come before you and declare our sinfulness. Declare my personal and our corporate need of you, Lord, and knowing that you have done everything to draw us back to you, to make us alive through your Son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you for being our Father who loves us and who listens to us and who cares for us and pursues us, but also our King who rules us and directs us and protects us. And so I pray today, Father, that you'll speak through your word as I share what you put upon my heart and that you will change us from the heart, from the inside out. Your word is the only thing that can do that. By your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as I said, we're going to introduce our nine-week series in this little book of Malachi. And uh, I'm going to begin uh, in the book and reading, uh, beginning with verse 1. And if you're not familiar where to find it, as I said, it is the uh, last book of the Old Testament. And it is just to the left of Matthew. Malachi says this, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. That's it. That's all we're going today, and it's going to be glorious. But as I said, this uh, may be the first time you even knew there was a book of Malachi in the Bible. This book, uh, which follows the uh, ever-popular and regularly preached books of Haggai and Zechariah, which are also books in the Bible as well, in case you didn't know, uh, isn't really that well-known Minus the fact that it's at the end of the Old Testament. That's how Christians typically are familiar with it. And we kind of ask ourselves many, what does approximately a 2,400-year-old book have to do with us in 2013? What could it possibly teach us? Well, Paul said in uh, Romans 15, verse 4, that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, and that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so this includes what we're going to go over today. Now, Malachi, uh, to give you a little bit of uh, just kind of information of who he is, uh, there's disagreement about who he actually is. Some say he was Ezra. Others say he's just a guy named Malachi. But he is the last of what we call, as we organize the Bible, of 12 minor prophets. Not minor because he was short, or young, but minor because what he rose, wrote in comparison to, to prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah, it's much shorter. And so he's the last of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And prophets, if you didn't know, had a very specific role in the Old Testament. And it's important for us to understand what role they had. First, prophets were preachers. They were divine mailmen. And God would reveal his word to them, and they would in turn publicly proclaim his word unedited to people 
and sometimes just a person, a king or a leader. And typically, they were chosen to uh, admonish and reprove and denounce sin and threaten with terrors of coming judgment if they didn't repent. And this made them pretty unpopular people. Okay? Po- uh, prophets, for the most part, were not um, the guys that everyone loved to hear from. Second, the prophets were actually watchmen. They were divine guards, if you were, just like divine mailmen. And they guarded God's honor. They were charged with guarding his name, if you will. And they did that by warning kings against really bad political decisions that they were about to make. Um, They talked often about the dangers of idolatry and and remind the people about the dangers of false worship and just the, the worthlessness of religion and its religiosity, if you will. And the third thing that prophets did was the thing that we're probably most familiar with is they told the future at times. That's what we think about prophets. It's prophesying. And they didn't just do that. But that was one of the more limited things that they did. But they were divine future tellers, and they would announce future judgments that were going to happen no matter what. Uh, They would declare future deliverance that was going to happen. And they would often, and, and some more than others, foretell of the coming Messiah and His kingdom. And so if we step back and see okay, the prophecy of Malachi, what can we expect to hear from this? Quite simply, we can expect to hear a call to repent from our sin. We can expect a warning against our idolatry. And we can expect a promise that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is coming. It's the same thing that the Old Testament guys heard that we're hearing today. Now, as a prophet, and like all prophets, Malachi was chosen to represent and speak for God. So prophets would often say, thus saith the Lord. So it's like, these are God's words, don't take it up with me. They're divine mailmen. And so in this uh, series, we've titled it uh, Rhetorical God, Hard Answers to Easy Questions. And the reason why we've titled it this way is because Malachi's prophecy consists of a series of questions, really. They begin with um, pretty easy questions, and God answers these easy questions himself with very hard answers. Now, these questions that are coming up are actually coming from the minds of the people that God is speaking to. So, basically, God will make some judgments, like, I love you, like, you despised my name, like, you polluted my covenant, like, you are tiring me out with your complaints like you have robbed me or you have spoken against me. And so Israel wants to argue. And that's the questions that God basically says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking this. And all of the questions start with like how. For example, I love you. How have you loved us? So God says, I know you're thinking, how have you loved us? Or, how have we despised your name? How have we tired you out with our complaints? How have we spoken out against you? How are we supposed to return to you like you asked? So Malachi is addressing basically an Israel that has a 
better view of their own faithfulness than God does. They view themselves in a much better light. And instead of humbly just accepting God's judgment, accepting what He has to say, they instead judge God. Argue with Him about how unloving He is. I love you. How have you loved us? And they don't do so necessarily with their mouths because they don't actually speak. It's God speaking, saying, I know you're thinking this. And it's very similar, I think, to us. The truth is, a lot of the time we sit in judgment on God. We dare not say it with our lips. We never say it out loud. But we certainly say it with our head, and often we say it with our hands. We judge God. Now, in order to understand what actually led Israel to this place where they would argue with God, we have to understand the history of what's going on here. Without kind of some context, it's going to make little sense. And that's the same for anything. And whenever we go through books of the Bible, which we always do, just go verse by verse, we have to do this because the context of yesterday really makes sure we can understand the context of today and how to apply it today. If we don't, if we just start, like, take Malachi out of the story of God, it'd be like coming into a novel at chapter 12 of maybe a 25-chapter novel. And you would be able to make some sense of the story. You would be able to appreciate chapter 12 at least, but you would certainly not be able to understand the whole story having missed the first 11 chapters, and you certainly would be able to appreciate everything that comes afterwards or even what's in the chapter. And so we have to understand that our faith as Christians is rooted in history. The gospel is what God has done in history to redeem mankind to his glory. If we don't care about history, if we kind of dismiss the Old Testament and the foundation of our faith, what will end up happening as we become faithful or, quote, religious we'll start to focus on our own work instead of the work that Jesus did 2,000 years ago on a cross. And even understanding the cross requires you understand the events that preceded. That's why when Jesus, a resurrected Jesus, when he was, he appeared to two men walking on a road away from Jerusalem after they had experienced the crucifixion and believed Jesus was still in the tomb. And they're going to a city named Emmaus or a village named Emmaus. And Jesus shows up incognito and starts walking with them, asking them questions like, what's going on? Why are you guys so sad? Why are you so upset? And they're like, are you kidding me? Have you been under a rock? You haven't heard what's happened? And he's like, no, tell me what happened. He's like, the Christ, he died. He was killed. He was supposed to be victorious. He was supposed to throw off Rome. He was supposed to be you know, this Messiah, and he's dead. And Jesus says, oh, this is what had to happen, though. And what does he do? He gives them a history lesson. You can read it, read it in Luke 24. He gives them a history lesson. It says, starting with Moses, which would be your first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, starting with Moses, and then it says, through the prophets, including Malachi, he pointed out it was all about him and how it was supposed to happen this way. 
And so Malachi and everything else points to Jesus. And so we have to understand what that pointer looks like. So that's my intent today, is to tell you this story. It's really broken into a couple sections, and then we'll hit Malachi at the end. to go, this is what it, the stage that's set for us. See, the Bible, as you may or may not know, it's a collection of 66 books, not just one book, but it is one story. And it's a story that was written by God, for God, and about God. And the prelude to Malachi can be divided into the sections I'm going to divide it into. Eden, Exodus, Empire, Exile. Okay? So if you want to write something down, there you go. Because that's where we're going. Eden, Exodus, Empire, and Exile. And some of you go, I've heard this story before. But can you tell it? Can you tell it? Because you need to be able to. The story begins, as we all know, with a God who creates, a good God, a just God, an awesome God, and He creates in six days everything, visible, invisible, and He speaks it into existence, and the world is beautiful, and He defines it as good, and He creates men and women. And He says, ooh, it's very good. And He enjoys their fellowship, and for who knows how long. And all is well, it seems, at least for two chapters in the Bible. And men and God live in harmony. But then, men believe the lie that happiness is found apart from God and His Word, and they rebel, and sin comes into the world. And having been charged with the privilege of building God-glorifying culture, men instead destroy their world, their relationship with God, and their relationship with each other. And then the strangest things happen. God says, I don't want them to eat from the tree of life in this condition. And he shoves them out of the garden. Which we read sometimes, you know, that seems kind of mean. Man, they already got like hard work and curses and pain and childbirth and all these things, but he doesn't want them to stay in their brokenness forever. And so out of love, he sends Adam and Eve out of the garden into chaos with the promise that a Savior will one day be born and will bring them back in. And from there, Adam and Eve produce sinful kids, leading to more sinful people, and finally the world is full of a sinful culture. So completely disgusted, God chooses a 600-year-old man named Noah. He says, you know what, I want you to big, build a big, huge boat, fill it with every animal, because it's going to rain, something that's never happened before up to that point. And then God wipes the world clean with a flood, only to see sin resurface in one or that same one sinful family that God chose to save. And the descendants of one of Noah's boys goes and tries to build a city to their own glory. They call it Babel. Babel. And in judgment, God confuses their languages and scatters them across the world. And in the midst of chaos, though, God still proves himself to be a God who saves. Why? Because, by grace, he chooses a pagan named Abraham. Abram at the time. And he says, I want you to leave this city. I want you to leave your family. I want to leave everything you know. I want you to go to a land that you've never seen. And I'm going to make your family into this huge, awesome, God-glorifying nation that blesses the world. Okay. And he goes. And he promises him a kid, a son, to which this nation is going to come, which makes his wife laugh. 
because they're both old, they have no kids, and they're pretty much sleeping in separate beds. Abraham believes, though, God, and after 25 years of stupid decisions, trying to fulfill this promise on their own, God gives a son named Isaac, who eventually has a son named Jacob, who eventually becomes Israel, who eventually has 12 sons, of which become the 12 tribes of Israel. I know that, Sam. Good, it's a review. Then there's one son named Joseph, whom Daddy Jacob loves the most. Why? Because he's the son of the woman he truly loves, Rachel. And so he's a daddy's boy. Tells his brothers he had an awesome dream how they were worshiping at his feet. His brothers don't like that. So they sell him into slavery. But as it's God's story, and we must never forget that, their evil is used by God for good to save all of his brothers and the entire nation of Egypt from a famine. God reveals himself in this story. It's a beautiful story. It's one of the most glorious stories in the Bible. But he reveals himself as the God who is never surprised, never not in control, always using, because it's the only kind there are, broken people to transform the darkest of situations so he can advance his kingdom. Eventually, Joseph dies. People forget what heroic Joseph did in Egypt and his entire family and the nation or group of people they've become at that point becomes enslaved. And they're enslaved for 400 years. And as a demonstration of his power, though, and maybe his sense of humor, God uses an 80-year-old fugitive-turned-shepherd named Moses to lead this next chapter of the story. And he talks to him through a burning shrubbery. Now, Exodus is the story of Joseph's descendants who, now enslaved in Egypt, are supernaturally saved by God from slavery. And it's like a Hollywood disaster film on a cosmic scale. And God frees his people from slavery, brings them out through this huge body of water called the Red Sea, and as they're about to get trounced by the Egyptians. God says, just be quiet, Moses. Watch and see what I do. Boom, opens it up. They go through. Everyone dies. They're a nation. He takes them to the bottom of a mountain called Mount Sinai. He gives them what we understand as the law. And he officially makes them his bridal nation. It's like a wedding ceremony. Unfortunately, the honeymoon ends pretty quickly. And Israel proves to be as sinful as ever, even during the wedding ceremony. Unwilling to uh, believe that God has given them a land, they come to the edge of the land, and they decide not to go in. At least 10 of 12 spies say we shouldn't, and those 10 convince the nation we will get slaughtered, though I know God said it's ours. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to kill you all. And he lets them wander around for 40 years so the generation that refused to go in, and one reason they used was because they didn't want their kids to die. So God pretty much says, that's okay. I'll just kill you, and then I'll take your kids in under the two spies that were faithful, Caleb and Joshua. And so Moses dies. General Joshua takes over. 
And he's one of the only two faithful men, and he leads a new generation to conquer the promised land. We preached on Joshua. It's a huge battle book of going and taking what God has promised them is theirs. So, they have a nation. They divide up a nation. They give land to all the twelve tribes of Israel. All seems well, and then Joshua dies. And no one is there to lead. And the parents forget what God had done and everything who he was and we get the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a, is a book with zero leadership. You got guys rise up basically because Israel goes through a cycle. They sin. God says, well, how do you punish a sinful nation? You spank them with another nation. So he spanks them. What happens when you spank a nation or a kid or anybody? They cry. And when they cry... God, as a loving Father, says, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and punish that nation that I used to spank you. And they raise up different heroes, and they're the most ragamuffin tag of group of people that are so messed up, but God uses them. Samson's a great example, a womanizing meathead that God still used to advance his kingdom. So, they really have no leadership, and by the time they get to the end of Joshua, they ask for a king. Because they want to be like every other nation. And so, God raises up a king, reluctantly. A man named Saul. Maybe you've heard of him. The first king of Israel. What does this have to do with Malachi? You'll see. Hold on. you got to go through all this? Yeah, we do. He is publicly, that is Saul, confirmed to be king, and he's to rule under the king, serving as the Lord's anointed. And like Adam, he's charged with being God's representative, spreading God's rule, building God's God-glorifying culture, but also like Adam, he fails. And God judges his rebellion, and he rips the throne away from him, and gives it to a young shepherd who can kill lions and bears, and nine-foot men with pebbles named David. And God makes a covenant with David, and he says... From your descendants, someone's going to come who's going to reign on your throne forever. The true king, the true Messiah, Jesus. So David rules faithfully, but he also sins grievously. Every guy in the Old Testament did, if you didn't know that. Your heroes are horrible, okay? But God is good. So David has an adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. Maybe you've heard of her. She's a wife of one of his best warriors, so that results in a great cover-up and the murder of her husband, the death of lots of Israelites to cover it up. This is the king. And all of this poor decision and sinful choices ends up establishing a legacy of violence which reigns in David's home for years, where his sons try to overthrow him. And it's just a sad situation horrible. But it also produces a son named Solomon, who becomes a very great king. Now Solomon is the most successful and wisest man that ever lived. Under Jesus. And Solomon wrote thousands of Proverbs, called the Book of Proverbs. It's pretty much the wisdom of a father telling the sons what to do. He also wrote an amazing love song 
and the only book of philosophy in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, which is pretty much a letter to his sons telling them what not to do. And in that letter, or sorry, philosophy, book of philosophy called Ecclesiastes, he basically says and declares that all he had, and he had everything, money, power, fame, reputation with the world, women, anything and everything that's made into the idol in today's world, he says it's all meaningless. And that joy comes from living in the fear of the Lord. Well, Solomon eventually builds the first temple, the house of the Lord. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But he fails to live in the fear that he wrote about. And eventually he dies. And we get the road to exile after the empire begins to fall. See, after King Solomon died, ten of the northern tribes, so you have Israel, now these tribes laying down, ten of the northern ones didn't want to follow his son, Rehoboam. So they revolt. And from that point, there's a divided kingdom. You've got a north and a south. They don't get along. North is called Israel, the south is called Judah. So as you read in the Old Testament and you start seeing Israel and Judah coming together, you're talking about this kingdom, this nation is divided in two. So for over about 250 years, different kings came and gone, it rose and fall. Some kings were very old and, and clearly very evil, and some kings were very young, even like eight years old, and, and pretty good, but still a little bit of evil. Most of the kings, if not all of them, led Israel into idolatry, and some of them reigned for very little, almost a month, and some reigned for almost 50 years. So 250 years of that. In the north, which would be called Israel, that was, uh, they proved to be really good at sinning. A lot better even than Judah. They were, they were very evil, more evil than Judah. And so they were warned by guys like Isaiah. Maybe you've heard of him. And in 722 B.C., no, well, I haven't given you any dates at this point, now that I realize that. But in 722 B.C., the north fell to a secular nation called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were a group of aggressive warriors. They were mean. Their capital city was Nineveh. Maybe you've heard of it. A guy that got thrown in a sea and eaten by a whale was spit up on their beach to go tell them to repent. And they did. And then Nahum, another prophet, was later sent to the same city, and they didn't repent. But that's the capital of Assyria. And God had protected Israel for so long, but eventually God is the one who gave them over to these Assyrians. And it was because Israel, by his own declaration, that they went after false gods, and they didn't heed the warnings of the prophets who told them this would happen. And so what did the Assyrians do to Israel? They scattered the tribes, ten of them. And they scattered them through the empire, and they took them away from their nation. And they made their capital Samaria. Maybe you've heard of it. And there they set up their own gods. They had false worship. And they had all kinds of cultic practices. Meanwhile, in the south, Judah and Jerusalem also saw their good and bad kings. 
And eventually Judah became so corrupt that God allowed it to fall to another powerful people called the Babylonians under a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe you've heard of him. They were conquering Assyria and they decided to conquer Judah while they were at it. And they did. And they go into Judah. Israel's already wiped out. They wipe out the Assyrians. They come out to Judah and they go into Jerusalem, the city of God, where the temple that Solomon built beautiful. They tear it all down. They tear down the walls of the city. And they tear down the temple, the dwelling place of God. And they bring an end to the glory of what was a glorious nation. And in order to destroy Jewish culture, see, Nebuchadnezzar was very uh, clever and strategic. And so what he would do is he basically deported all the most prominent kind of culture-creating citizens. And he would bring them all back to Babylon. That would include the priests and the craftsmen and the wealthy guys. It included men like Ezekiel, men like Daniel, guys that are in the Bible, men like Jeremiah. They brought him back to Babylon. So now Judah is full of Babylonians. And Israel spread across everywhere but their hometown. Their nation that God had given them. But eventually, God decides to spank the Babylonians with a group called the Persians. And a king named Cyrus defeats Babylon. Enter Malachi. Now the story of Malachi actually begins in a book of the Bible we have called Ezra. In fact, in order to understand Malachi, you actually need to read Ezra Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Yeah, they all go together. I thought they were all... No, it's one story. So it begins actually in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. And what does it say? Well, it basically says, during the first year of the king Cyrus, who's the king of the Persians, what happens? God comes down, changes his heart. says, I want you to send all of Israel back to Israel. You go, what? What would do that, God? In fact, if you read verse 1 of Ezra, it says the Lord moved him. He's like, you know what? I mean, just imagine this. This is a secular king who slaughtered nations, purposely moved them out to destroy their culture, and then goes, hmm, you know what, guys? I want you to go back to Jerusalem, and I want you to rebuild it. I'm going to give you money, and I want you to rebuild the temple and everything else. Only God. See, God does work in the hearts of people who are not His. He is in control of everything. Never doubt that. There's absolutely zero explanation for this king doing that. But he does it. And the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah record this. And they record three different waves of people that come and return to this nation from exile. And Malachi takes place between the second and third waves of people going back to Israel. And so, the first return is led by a guy named Zerubbabel. He's the governor. And a high priest, yeah, he identifies a high priest, and his name is Joshua. Not the same Joshua. That Joshua is dead and buried. Okay? It's important, though, Joshua, Yeshua, is the same name of Jesus in the New Testament. And there's all kinds of messianic connections there. 
but there's a guy named Joshua who serves as the high priest. And most Israelites, this might surprise you, decide not to go. Most Israelites decide to stay in Babylon. They like their life. But there's a remnant. There's a group of devoted Israelites who say, we want to return. Now remember what they're returning to. No temple. No city. The land used to be this. Now it's this. Nothing. This group, the only thing that could possibly draw them to this is that this is the place that God dwells. This is the place that God, this is the place where he said, my name will be here. So 42,000 out of millions decide to return. In fact, Ezra says there's about 42,000 Israelites, 7,000-ish servants, and then 200 singers, because you always need a worship team, right? And what's the first thing they do when they arrive? They arrive, and it's just rubble. And they take a free will offering. They're just, okay, guys, we've got to do this. And they take this offering so that they can rebuild God's house. So they worked immediately. They clear the temple area of the rubble and they replace the altar. And within months they had laid the foundation. And in Ezra chapter 3, it's this beautiful picture. The old men are weeping as it's laid and the young men are rejoicing. Because the old men know the glory that this temple will never be that was Solomon's temple. And the young men have never seen anything. And they're like, yeah. It's going to rain here again. But the foundations as far as they get. And hostility of the neighbors and other difficulties caused the work to cease, and they turned to their private affairs. And then Haggai. Yeah, Haggai is a book in the Bible. Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. I'm going backwards. Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah, Haggai. So Haggai is a guy. And God starts speaking to him, and Haggai stands up. Here's what he says in Haggai chapter 1. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. So God's speaking. He's a prophet. These people say the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 4, It is a time for you yourself. Is it a time for you yourselves to, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? In other words, he says, you guys are building fantastic homes for yourselves, but you've forgotten the home of the Lord. In essence, they've done a great job, for whatever reason they gave up, building their own little mini-kingdoms, building their own little lives and ignoring any obligations they have for God. And so Haggai, it's really a letter of encouragement, but he says, repent, rebuild, finish, let's go. And if you only had Haggai, right, if you only had that book, you might be led to believe that the only thing God cares about is work and buildings. We have people today pretty confused about that. Churches today confused about that. Maybe they've only read Haggai. We also have Zechariah. See, God also wanted his people to be ready to worship when the temple was built. And so two months after Haggai begins to speak, a man named Zechariah, yes, they were at the same time, in the same place. 
he begins to speak to the Lord as well. And through Zechariah, God starts to warn his people. He's like, don't make the same mistake your fathers made where they're all excited about me and then they forgot me. And he also comforts his people. Why? Because they're sharing their city with Persians. They're building a less glorious temple. And they're living in a way smaller land than they were before. So it's an encouragement. It's like, you guys can do this. My spirit's with you. Not by might, but my spirit, it's going to happen. You've probably heard that verse before. He's encouraging them as they build. And he not only wants them to rebuild, but also to renew their covenant. He's like, return to me. It's like, we're already here. He's not talking about location. Then he gives nine really confusing visions. Go ahead, you can read them on your own. You're like, what the snarf is that? I don't know. Nine very visual, artistic visions. And he explains, though, generally his plan God to return one day to Jerusalem. Remember, they have no walls. Their city's still in rubble. He says, one day I'm going to return to Jerusalem. I'm going to dwell in the city. I'm going to defend this city personally. I'm going to rescue these people from their enemies. I'm going to cleanse them from their sin. I'm going to restore you guys to prosperity forever in a way that is more beautiful than you can ever imagine. And so they're encouraged. And so Zechariah shows us that God doesn't just want a house restored. He wants to restore a relationship with his people through covenant worship, and he gets them ready for worship. But if we only had Haggai, and we only had Zechariah, we might be led to believe that God is satisfied only with Israel's festivals and their acts of worship. And this is what brings us to Malachi. See, through Haggai, God says, I want you to build a place for me to worship. And through Zechariah, God says, I want you to worship me. But then, through Malachi, he says, I don't just want your religion. I want your heart. And this is where Malachi, I pray, hits us. Because there's a lot of stuff we can do as a church that has the appearance of godliness but is not worship of the heart. But anyone on the outside would look and say, man, those guys worship when we know that may not be the truth. So I think Malachi has a message for us, and here's the context. A hundred years. So Haggai comes, Zechariah comes two months later, and then a hundred years comes and Malachi shows up. It's been a hundred years after they returned from exile, and they have rebuilt the temple. The temple's been rebuilt. They did, as Haggai and Zechariah encouraged them to do. And God's people, though, have grown disillusioned. They've grown very discouraged. They've begun, maybe have for a while, to doubt God's promises. In other words, the honeymoon is over. It's exciting coming back to the nation, right? This is something new. It's like planting a church. Then they get the temple built. Yeah! Yeah! Let's start worshiping, yeah. And then the prosperity that Zechariah promised never happens. And you have the first words of Malachi. What are the first words of Malachi? Having God declaring, I love you guys. I love you. And the first question he says that they're thinking is, how have you loved us? 
know if he loved us, God. See, in their eyes, they've done everything God asked them to do. They rebuilt the temple. They started the worship. They obviously came back to the land. And yet, where's the prosperity you talked about that Zechariah talked about? Where's the, the glory? Where's the rest? Where's the money? Where's the ease of work? What, why are the enemies all around us still and they seem to be thriving? See, even though the sacrificial routines have continued in Israel, they're doing the worship, they're doing the sacrifices. We see in just their answers, or the questions that God asks, I should say, that genuine worship had ceased because God didn't come through. In their eyes, God didn't provide, God didn't prosper, God didn't protect, God didn't really care. And so the question for us all as we go into Malachi is, what happens to your faith when God doesn't love or come through the way you wanted him to? Or the way you believed he would? See, Malachi is going to pull the curtain back really far on our religiosity. And he's going to reveal whether or not that we really love God or we just love what God can give us. And God is going to challenge all of us with some very hard questions, and it's going to be very tempting, and I caution you against this, to argue with God. And to tell Him all the things that you've done. If you read Matthew 7, there's a group of people that go before God and tell Him all the things they've done. And He says, I never knew you. See, the important question for us in terms of religion And I'm using that pejoratively. I'm using it negatively. It doesn't really matter, or the question I should say is not if you go to church or if you read your Bible or if you pray or if you feed the poor or if you do any number of good things or don't do any number of bad things. The important question is, why do you do or not do any of those things? Why? I'll give you a brief story to hit the point, and then I'll close it out. I heard this story from a couple pastors, and you may have heard the story before, but I thought it convicted me, and maybe it'll move you. It's not a true story. It's a parable, if you will. Imagine Jesus is with his disciples, and they're going to go on a journey, and he says to Peter and the other disciples as well, carry a rock for me carry a rock for me? He's like, why? They just, just carry a rock for me. So Peter picks up a little rock, sticks it in his pocket. Everyone else picks up different sized rocks. They continue on. They walk for several hours and they come to about lunchtime and they stop and Jesus says, okay, get those rocks out. Okay, Peter pulls out his little pebble. He's like, hey, that's lunch. And look down, and it's bread. Peter's like, oh. He's really hungry, right? He's walked a long way. So he pops in his little hors d'oeuvre. 
Everyone else eats, you know, whatever size they had. And so Peter's thinking, I'm going to be ready next time. So then, Jesus, all right, you guys done? All right, uh, carry a rock for me, will you? So Peter's thinking this time, well, I'll carry a rock for you, Jesus. And he gets a rock and he, you know, hurks that thing up. And they start walking. And they walk for several hours. And Peter's stomach's growling. Because he hasn't eaten much of anything. He's like, when we stop, I'm going to feast on this piece of bread. So they come to a river. and Jesus stops. He's like, okay, get those rocks out. Just go and throw them in the river. Peter's like, oh, yeah, we've got something. Throws in the river. All right, let's go, guys. They start walking. And Jesus looks at Peter and just simply says, well, who are you carrying the rock for, Peter? Who are you carrying the rock for? And that just speaks to the heart of, of any worship we do. You know, Romans one talk, or Romans 12 talks about this life of worship. And you ask yourself, um, in terms of how you relate in marriage, how you parent your kids, again, it's the question of why. For yourself or is it for the Lord? This worship that they're doing, is it for themselves for the Lord. Malachi shows us quite simply that God wants more than our religion. And religion, honestly, is what we're all really good at. See, the religious says that God accepts me and blesses me when I do what is good and not do what is bad. And then God owes me for what I've done. That's religion. That's not what the Gospel says. See, the Gospel says, the news of Jesus Christ says that God loves you in Jesus. And though He owes you absolutely nothing, He gave you everything He had. And you don't need to do anything only to believe in what He has done for you. That's the Gospel. We worship God not to get something but to get him. And this is the issue that Israel has. Because when you worship God to get something, when that something doesn't come through, suddenly your relationship and your view of even God has changed. But when you worship God just to get him, man, that changes what I do. That changes what I see. That changes even what I feel because of what I know about the God who loves me. So Malachi is going to be hard-hitting. And Malachi is the last thing that God says for 400 years. So Malachi comes and he asks all these questions and the people respond or they don't. And then there's 400 years of silence. And guess how that silence is broken? An angel comes to a young woman who's engaged to be married and, she, and he speaks a name. Jesus. See, it's Jesus that the story points to. It's Jesus who fulfills Haggai's prophecy to build a place for God to dwell. He is the presence of God with men. And Jesus fulfills what Zechariah said, the promise of a righteous priest who is going to one day 
make everything perfect in one final sacrifice and cleanse all sins in one day. And it's Jesus who comes and fulfills Malachi's prophecy. Because Jesus is the only one that ever came and gave everything, his entire heart, to worship God. Why? So that we could be given that same heart. You see, the craziness of the gospel is that God calls us to return to him. And guess what? We can't. We don't have that power. And so what does he do? When he breaks the silence, he comes to us. He comes to us. That's the story of Malachi, and that's where we're going. And I would challenge you, as you gather here on Sundays, as we come and we sing songs together and we fellowship together and we enjoy some awesome treats together, we take communion together, and we hear God's word together, I would just encourage you to ask yourself one thing. Ask yourself why you're here. We're here to worship Jesus. We're here to worship what God has done. We are here more to give than to get anything. This is the one time during the week we gather as God's people to declare and to glory in what God has done for us. Don't ever make it into routine. Don't ever make it into something that, you know, is just a box you're checking, thinking that God is impressed, thinking that God loves you more because you came here or because you sing louder. We come here in response to what God has already done, not to get some kind of response out of him. We come here not so that he'll accept us, study the Bible, not so they accept us. We know in Christ we're accepted and therefore we worship. I pray that that's the heart of our church because it's easy to get excited about stuff. It's easy to get excited about the routine, but do we get excited about God himself? And this is where Malachi is going to push us.